You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. My guest today is Professor Richard Aldrich from the UK, University of Warwick, and I wondered if you'd be kind enough Richard, just to give our listeners a little bit more sense of, of your present involvement, and I know you've written several books at least. Thank you. I'm, I'm from the University of Warwick, and I'm director of the Institute of Advanced Study. I've written several books on intelligence, so my first <coughs> intelligence book was a study of British and American intelligence in the war against Japan, particularly OSS and, and SOE. And my second book was on Anglo-American intelligence cooperation during the Cold War, particularly focusing on the 50s and 60s. And my, sec- my, my, my last book, my most recent book, is a book on the history of GCHQ, which is the British equivalent of the National Security Agency. So in other words, a, a history of modern code breaking. All right. And GCHQ stands for? It stands for Government Communications Headquarters, and it's essentially the modern continuation of Bletchley Park. Right. And, uh, and, and that is your most recent book. I've got to think that it's very popular, given the, uh, the headlines that Snowden is certainly garnering here, and I think in the UK, at least in The Guardian. <laughs> well, certainly Snowden has kept me very busy, but of course it's made my book almost obsolete. I've got to go and rewrite it now. But Snowden, the Snowden revelations have been fascinating in the sense that Actually, some of these things are not revelations. If, if someone had been reading something like Wired magazine for the last two or three years, actually the stories that Snowden has told us wouldn't be a great surprise. The, the big surprise, however, is just how well NSA and GCHQ have done against their main enemy. So their main enemy over the last few years has not been Al-Qaeda, has not been drug smugglers. Their main enemy has been the internet. And since the 1990s, they've been struggling to deal with the the Mm. sheer volume of communication. The world sends three million emails a second. And the surprise has been that actually NSA and GCHQ have been dealing with that volume. We thought they were going deaf with the sheer volume of communications. We thought they could not cope. But actually, they've managed to collect and store and analyze this stuff in a way which is, which is quite breathtaking, actually. I, I think it's extraordinary. As you and I were chatting earlier, <clears throat> in the wake of 
the, the people in the form of Congress and the public generally said, turned to the intelligence community and said, this is terrible. We can't have this going on. We can't have any more uh, surprise attacks and so forth and so on. Do something. And so they threw money at the community and then tried to beat the horse, as it were, with a whip. <clears throat> and I think uh, in the case of NSA, you know, in the face, as you say, of the Internet, not, I mean, it's interesting for you to identify the Internet as the adversary to an extent. It was a technical adversary. So the Internet, digital, fiber optics, all of those things, in the face of those, I couldn't agree with you more that NSA and GCHQ have achieved an extraordinary degree of success. And it's also interesting to me that for all the, the noise about Snowden's revelation, I don't know that one of the things he's exposed has shown an illegality. That is, at least in this country, uh, it may have gone beyond what perhaps some members of Congress or the public were thinking should be done, like, like covering all of this metadata. But there were briefings done of Congress, and people can now say, well, I didn't quite understand it, or I had no idea it would go this far. But most of what he's exposed has to do with, for, from our perspective, foreign intelligence. What is going on outside this country? Do you agree? I, I, think, I think they sailed close to the wire. And I think the fact okay. that Congress rushed to give retrospective <clears throat> immunity from prosecution uh, to some of the heads of the telecoms indicates that there's a legal debate going on within government even now about just how legal those operations were. I, I think for me the big lesson of Snowden is not about privacy, surveillance, spying. It's actually about the end of secrecy. The end of secrecy. The end of secrecy. So we've been talking about the end of privacy for decades. You can yes. find stories on the cover of Time magazine sure. from the 1970s talking <clears> about <throat> the end of privacy. Privacy has been in the intensive care ward for, <laughs> for a long time. But the end of secrecy is new. And, you know, the, the panic conversations in Washington and also Whitehall over the last six months have all been about, are we going to have any secrets left? Because, you know, if you go back to the 1970s and you think about the big leakers of the 1970s, think about Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon. Yes, Papers, you know. yes. If you're Daniel Ellsberg in the 1970s, you need 24-hour access to a photocopier and you need some pretty big shopping bags to get the stuff out of your, your headquarters. But now, if you want to leak, you can push this stuff onto a hard drive. Apparently, Snowden has about 2 million documents. It's a, yeah, it's, it's 1.72. It's just incredible, the amount. So right now, you know, people are sitting in, <coughs> in Washington and, and Whitehall, and they're saying, well, who is the next Snowden? And who is the next Snowden? And of course, you know, Snowden is one of a line of about 10 Yes. Leakers, whistleblowers, traitors, yes. you know, people use different words depending on how you view yes. these people, but he's one of about 10 people. So it's not just one person, it's a growing phenomenon. And government is now saying, and of course, we're now in an era where intelligence is all about the need to share. Yes, need, need to share. You need to yeah. share, but that yeah. means your colleagues know everything you know, <clears throat> and what do we do about the next Snowden and the next Snowden? Yeah. And there's also a focus, if you look at some of the sort of cultural studies and so forth, in the different views of different generations about this. I mean, in our country, for example, you can see differences between the East Coast and the West Coast. The West Coast, Silicon Valley, 
young young folks dealing with the internet and so forth feel very strongly a whistle you know whistleblower yeah this this is something we have to be concerned about and of course with silicon valley and and their commercial interests this is hurting them commercially in europe yeah. And, and those, those younger generations are they're what I call the David Brin generations. And David Brin was a famous writer of both science fiction and political theory. And he said, you know, all this stuff about surveillance and the end of privacy, don't panic. Don't panic. You know, mo most people who talk about this stuff have a very dark, scary, Orwellian view of, of the end of privacy. He says it's fine. It's fine because the end of privacy... Yeah, it means the end of privacy for you and me as individual citizens, but actually the younger generation don't seem to care about that very much. It also means the end of secrecy for government. So if you're worried about what government is doing, well, they can't do bad stuff. It means the end of confidentiality for corporations. So corporations can't do bad stuff. So, so David Brin is saying, we're all going to be living in a nudist camp. All right. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about living in a nudist camp, but <laughs> it could be quite fun. It could be, I mean, he calls it the transparent <clears throat> society. Yes. And it's not necessarily dark. It's not necessarily dark. And of course, transparency is something that we sort of, in, in certainly the Western democracies, have always looked at as a virtue. You know, the more transparent the government or corporations or others, the better. Yeah. Uh, and now, of course, <clears throat> certainly in this country, people are giving away their, quote, private information at a great rate, you know, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or any of these uh, social, uh, social media yeah. uh, vehicles. It's quite extraordinary. And, and this is, <coughs> this is <coughs> to some extent, the future of intelligence, because what we've seen over the last 20, 30 years is a shift from looking at states, military threats, missiles, submarines, to looking at people. You know, whether we're looking at terrorism or organized crime or civil mm. wars, it's all about people, particularly people who move around the world. And who has intelligence on people? Actually, it, it's not really the intelligence agencies. It's the airlines, it's the banks, it's the internet service providers. It's my supermarket. My supermarket has way more intelligence on me, I hope, than, than, than government. And so, Intelligence has kind of escaped out there into, into the world. And it's not just the big corporations. It's, it's, it's you and me. It's you and me. So, you know, if, 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 um, if I go home tonight and I'm thinking about going on holiday somewhere, I, I, overseas, I can go on a government website and it will tell me whether it's, you know, if I'm thinking of going on a holiday in the Ukraine, and probably not, but, you know, just say I am. Oh, you know, right. I can, I can look on a government website and it'll say, probably, probably, you know, Peter, it's probably not a good idea to go on, on, on your holiday to the Ukraine. Right. You know? And then, you know, if I look out of my bedroom window and I see my neighbors draw up in a, so, you know, that, 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 that makes me a consumer of a very low, yes. very low order. But if I then look <laughs> out of my bedroom window and I see my neighbors draw up in a car and they're unloading bags of fertilizer from the back of the car, and I'm thinking, Actually, those guys haven't got a garden. What are they doing with all those bags of fertilizer? You know, probably making explosives. I, I should be giving someone a phone call. So we're asking all our citizens now to report suspicious activity. So if you like, you know, everybody in the United States is now part of the intelligence community. 
Yes, the mantra, as you know, is if you see something, say something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, and and it's, it's like a large form of what we call neighborhood watch. Yeah. Let me ask you, intelligence, for those of us who've been involved with it or students of it, whatever, <clears throat> is simply information. I mean, it's, 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 it's a particular kind of information. Much of what intelligence looks at is from overt sources, whether it's foreign radios, foreign newspapers, to understand what is in the rest of the world. And more and more you see information that has been gathered by what might have been technical means in, in the intelligence era, if you will. For example, we're looking at satellite information about where this Malaysian jet might have gone down, this 777. And so we're seeing satellite pictures of debris in the ocean. We're listening to ra you know what radar picked up the pings from the yeah. black box. This is almost a, a melding of intelligence capabilities shared now with government sources uh, for the common good. Yeah. And all kinds sense. of big data. And yes. this, is, this is where we're going. I mean, I mean <clears throat> Peter, you know, in, in five years' time, you and I will have a little chip in our arms. And it'll be doing something called telehealth monitoring. So it, it'll, be, it'll be following the vital signs in my body. And if I'm going to have a stroke or a heart attack, next week. It will pick up the little pre-signs that something's going wrong and I'll be called into my doctor and I'll be given some pills and, and I'll, I, I, I won't have that stroke. And, and what that little chip will be doing, it will be collecting that information and really the information about what's going on in my body is, is private health information and it'll be pumping it up to the cloud. Will it be secure? Will insurance companies be able to get at it? Yes. It's, it's, there's risk there. There's risk. I'm, I'm giving away a lot of private information. It's being pumped up into the cloud. But I will, I will go for that chip because I don't want to have a right. heart attack or a, right. or a stroke. And actually, in another five years' time, say I'm, um, I'm coming out of a bar in Georgetown at two in the morning, and I've maybe had one whiskey too many, um, and I'm, you know, I'm a bit wobbly on my feet, and someone tries to mug me. The increase in my heart rate, my body will give up all sorts of chemicals that say that I'm being attacked. And an automatic message will be sent to the police saying, in that particular street in Georgetown, someone's in trouble. <clears throat> and a police car will show up in 30 seconds. Actually, it might even be a drone in, in <laughs> 10 years' time. So, no, so I, I, yeah. the, the, future is, the future is amazing. And you know, by the time we get to 2020, we will have 50 billion devices connected to the internet. And they will all be collecting this big data. And exactly as you say, the world of intelligence and information and surveillance and shopping will all, will all merge. You know, one of the intriguing areas of intelligence <clears throat> has always been what people call human, human intelligence, that is, <clears throat> uh, people from intelligence agencies like CIA in this country or MI6 in, in the UK going out into the field and looking for, quote, sources, people who want to volunteer or people who can be persuaded to give information. What do you see as the future of something like human? I, 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 I think they're an endangered species. I mean, if you're trying to send an MI6 officer overseas now undercover, what do you do about biometrics? What yes. do you do about iris recognition? How do you even get them across the border? 
you know, when, when the border agencies and the police are equipped with all kinds of scanners that can definitively identify a human being. I mean, it was difficult in the 70s and 80s. If you were putting a, an agent into Moscow, you had to, have, had to have Russian fluff in the bottom of their pockets. So it was difficult even then. But now it's really difficult. So I think the, the human spy isn't extinct, but they're an endangered species. I think you're right. The other, the other thing that occurs to me as you're speaking is, of course, <clears throat> if you even take the sleeper agents like the, the Russian, the KGB, uh, illegals, so-called, uh, of, of whom we arrested 10 uh, in 2010, um, their legends will have to be so much more thoroughly done. Where were they in high school? Were they using Facebook? Why aren't they turning up in the yearbooks and so forth? In other words, the, the capabilities of intelligence services around the world understand what they're confronting when foreigners come into the country or people who are suspected intelligence officers. Uh, it's going to be so much more formidable to send people into those kinds of environments. Yes, it's, it's, going, to be, it's <clears throat> going to be very, very difficult indeed. And of course, you know, just, just, just not being there or not traceable is, isn't enough. Because if you're not traceable, you look suspicious. Yes, yeah. So yeah. this is going to be a real challenge. It's going yes. to be a real challenge. But the, and one of the thing, one of the hallmarks of this technological age that we're in, is things are happening so quickly. You've used things like 2020 or 2030. They may even be coming faster than that because it, it's just the <clears throat> the capabilities. I mean, the, the development of robotics and so forth is happening so quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's already affecting job markets, and and certainly we'll see it affect things like human intelligence operations. Well, we even saw it during the, the bombing of the Boston Marathon not very long ago. Yes. Uh, amazing developments there. Within hours, we saw ordinary citizens <coughs> sharing photographs on the web, just chatting in chat rooms and the blogosphere. And, you know, did anybody take any photographs <coughs> um, in the minutes before the, before the attack? Did anybody photograph anybody with a rucksack? And all of a sudden, people are putting, oh, there, there's, there's, a, there's a guy with a rucksack. There's another guy with a rucksack. No, no, no. Does anybody know their names? And then, you know, on the internet, oh, my friend knows his name. So within hours, you've got um, photographs going up, names being attached. Where do these guys live? And there were people gathering outside. These were false positives, unfortunately. There were people gathering outside <coughs> their houses. So, you know, on the internet, you had collection, analysis, and action on, all happening completely outside government control. It's almost like the, the crowdsourcing Absolutely. that I think we talked about a little bit Absolutely. earlier, and even these investment opportunities, now these Kickstarter yeah. campaigns where money comes in yes. from all over for your yeah. project. Yes. You may not even know who the investors are. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's a, uh, and, and I think even in that instance of the marathon bombing, as I recall, the FBI was very quick to finally put out sketches of, of who they thought the people looked like. O oftentimes, I find they have waited for a fairly long period of time. Seems to me it came out fairly quickly yeah. when they were when they were looking then for the uh, yeah. perpetrators. Yeah. And this this brings us on to a new <coughs> um, vista of the the future of intelligence, which is accountability. So, in, in, intelligence agencies have to fill that public space. Just keeping your mouth shut 
is, is not good enough anymore. And, and indeed, you know, accountability is, is slipping away from congressional committees on intelligence towards the internet, NGOs, international lawyers, investigative journalists who, who are cooperating, who are cooperating to offer a different form of accountability. And, and not one that, frankly, not one that the agencies always like. You recall after the 9-11 commission, after the 9-11 uh, commission, uh, I mean, after 9-11 there was a commission that made recommendations. And it seems to me one of the only recommendations that was not accepted was to some way reform Congress, the congressional oversight of intelligence. I think that's one of the last things to be addressed. I don't think it's been addressed at all, frankly. Uh, and, and it goes to the, part of the heart of what you're saying. And, and, you know, we're dealing in a period in this country where Congress is sort of uh, at gridlock. I mean, the efficiency, effectiveness of Congress right now is at a standstill. People are very upset yeah. by it. Yeah. Yeah. But but even, <clears throat> if, you know, e even if Congress gets its act together, who, who wants to go and read their reports when you can read um, stuff from Snowden in the New York Times or go and watch Zero Dark Thirty? And, and right. you know, maybe Zero Dark Thirty is the new. <laughs> it's, it's the well. I mean, a lot. No, of, you're a right. lot of documents yes. were made available to the makers mm -hmm. of the film. Indeed, it was regarded as having you know so much national security information that there were there were some significant. There were some questions about the yeah. about whether when it should be, be released, whether they'd been given too much information. Yeah. But yeah. as you and I both know, the public's impressions of things like Zero Dark Thirty, like Argo. And mm. so forth are so often formed by the films, the Absolutely. movies, the television series. Absolutely. Um, let me, we looked a little bit at human. Um, the overwhelming majority of people in the intelligence community, which now is on the order of 200,000 in our country, deal in analysis, whether it's analysis of overhead photographs, analysis of, of, of signals intelligence, analysis of human reporting. What would be your comment on, on the role of analysis and analysts in well, the future? Well, I think because, because <clears> the, <throat> the nature of intelligence is changing, we've talked about how intelligence is merging with information and big data and information from shopping, <clears throat> actually means that intelligence agencies aren't necessarily <clears throat> the best people to do analysis. So if we're looking at this new kind of intelligence that we're getting from social media, People are looking at the Arab Spring and saying, well, if we'd looked at all the Twitter accounts, yes. all, all the information from Twitter over the last you know, year or so, could we have predicted the Arab Spring? So actually, that kind of intelligence question is the sort of thing that sociologists in university sociology departments have been trying to work on for 20 or 30 years. In fact, there's, there's almost no distinction between that kind of analysis and the kind of sentiment analysis that people are doing in big think tanks that are doing support for political campaigns and what sociologists are doing. So again, it's, it's the world of intelligence analysis merging with other things and maybe, maybe it'll be that, that people in think tanks and universities will basically replace intelligence agencies who are in that kind of business. Yeah. Perhaps one of the only things that, well, of course, the intelligence agencies have had uh, an advantage <clears throat> in that they've been given all the information, and obviously that's 
I'm saying that uh, sort of generically, all the information signals intelligence overhead, and they have a privilege of putting that together, yeah. and they can move with a degree of speed yeah. in producing their analysis, which the sociologists, the think tanks, uh, may lag behind, but not by much. If you listen now to the commentary, whether it's in the media, uh, uh, talk shows, or whatever, on, say, the Crimean situation, it's very well informed. Many people have served in the, in the government, in intelligence, or in think tanks, and they're bringing the same discipline of thinking, and they just don't have maybe the very latest information. Uh, for example, uh, you, you mentioned Twitter and the Arab Spring. Mm. Well, as you know, in communications intelligence, you're both looking at content. Yeah. What, are these what, are, what do the tweets say? Yeah. As well as the sheer volume, the traffic sure. analysis of how much tweeting is being done and from where, and, uh, and, and to the extent you can on, on which side of the issue. So I think you're dead on. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, um, we've all become, an, become intelligence analysts in a sense. Now, one of the things that's interesting in, uh, here in this country is the fragmentation of the media, of the press, uh, and, and of radio and of television. And so in many cases, people are maybe getting their, maybe getting some news from the internet in some cases, but it's usually fragmentary. It's usually bits and pieces. It's not big picture stuff in the sense that the intelligence agencies have tried to put together for the policymakers. And, and this, this fragmentation <clears throat> is even happening in terms of the sort of secret internal intranets that government uses. So. Now, one of the slightly disturbing things if you're an intelligence analyst or even the head of an intelligence agency is that your policymakers often have access to secure databases and they can go fishing around for themselves. Um, they can become do-it-yourself analysts and you turn up to give your, <coughs> your senior policymaker their brief and you, 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 you tell them what your analysts have made of it and he says, oh, no, 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 I was looking around on the database and I've, I found this intercept. And it says exactly what I believe, and it allows, you know, co bias confirmation, yeah. and all sorts of all sorts of funny things are going on. Yeah. Because the, <clears throat> you know, the policymakers have access to raw data. That the children have got the keys to the sweetie cabinet. You know, yes. It's yeah. Quite dangerous, actually. Yeah, it is quite, <laughs> quite dangerous. So, what do you do? You see this being? It's too early, I think, to see what you're saying being manifested in terms of the existing intelligence communities, say, in the United States, in the UK? Or do you see any manifestations of it yet? Uh, yeah, yes, I do. I mean, with, with, <coughs> with policymakers, for example, the, <coughs> you know, the smart intelligence agencies have decided to sit analysts right alongside the policymakers to, to develop that personal relationship. And in this new world, delivering very tailored very responsive and exactly as you say, you know, um, real-time response is is crucial. You've got to be ahead of the curve. But actually, the the thing which which bothers me most is the advent of what I call electronic covert action. So things like Stuxnet, things like cyber war. So this introduces real conflicts of interest and real dangers I think so you know if, if you look at the look at America's largest intelligence agency the National Security Agency you actually have three badges 
on, 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 the, on the sign outside the National Security Agency, you have Central Security Service, which is looking after the defensive side, stability, communication security, resilience. You have the NSA, which does intelligence gathering, and you have US Cyber Command. If you're doing the defensive side, if you're responsible for resilience and the maintenance of the internet for American electronic commerce and you know all, <coughs> all that stuff, you want secure systems. You want resilience. You, you, you don't want computers with little holes in the back and zero-day exploits and all this kind of stuff. If you work in the other side of the business, if you do cyber command yes. and you're cooking up the next Stuxnet you want holes, you want exploits, you want weaknesses. And so there's, there's a real conflict of interest there in terms of do you want your overall architecture of intelligence and security resilience to be set up one end which favors resilience, stability, or, or do you want opportunities? And, and my, my, my worry is, is actually, you know, we've seen the damage that Snowden has done. Yeah. What happens if the next Snowden works at US Cyber Command? What if, it, what if he's one of a team of 2,000 people who've cooked up the next Stuxnet? And if he decides to go rogue, what does he do with it? He's probably not going to sell it to the New York Times. What if he sells it to a, a, a Russian organized criminal? What if he uses it just to stop trading on the stock exchange in New York, London, Tokyo, and Frankfurt for 10 days? Think back to the economic crisis of 2008. What would that do to our economies? So when I talk to people in the, in the IT industry, they, they, have a, they have a name for this. They call it the Frankenstein problem. And I think the Frankenstein problem is one of the issues looming on the horizon for the future of intelligence. Well, I think that's a, a very serious warning. As you know, and this is sort of uh, pegged to our times, uh, the present administration here has resisted having separating uh, the National Security Agency from the Cyber Command. In other words, the, there was a proposal to make two different heads. And the administration has said, no, it's going to remain one head. And I think that uh, in light of what you're saying in describing the Frankenstein problem uh, goes directly to that issue, which I, I think is a, uh, a warning note. That'll, that'll be a strategic warning note that we can end our, our interview on. Uh, <clears throat> Richard Aldridge, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being with us this afternoon. I look forward to speaking with you again next time you're here. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.